I think the Israeli system will regather, rehabilitate its capacity to push back. And I think it's going to come at a huge cost to Palestinians in the short term. I do think in the long term, this doesn't play out well for Israel. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. The crisis in Israel and Gaza and southern Lebanon and the West Bank is unfolding rapidly. Following the Hamas attacks on Saturday, Netanyahu promised to, quote, return fire of a magnitude that the enemy has not known. As I am recording this on Monday, October 9th, Israel has launched a series of airstrikes in Gaza and seems to be readying a ground invasion. Meanwhile, unrest in the West Bank has led to at least 11 Palestinians killed by Israeli soldiers, and in southern Lebanon, Hezbollah has been trading rocket fire with Israel. Joining me to discuss this crisis is Daniel Levy, who is head of the U.S. Middle East Project and is a former peace negotiator under the governments of Israeli Prime Ministers Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak. We kick off discussing why the Hamas attack happened when it did, the strategic logic underpinning Hamas's actions, Israel's likely response, the implications of this episode for Israeli domestic politics, and the prospect that this might devolve into a wider regional conflict. This is a special edition of the podcast. We typically publish on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, but given the volatility of this crisis, I wanted to get this episode to you early. For more frequent updates from me and contributors to Global Dispatches, please sign up for our newsletter at globaldispatches.org, where you can also support our work through a paid subscription. Paid subscriptions are also available directly in the Apple Podcasts app and by following the links in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for your support. We depend on it. Now, here is my conversation with Daniel Levy, head of the U.S. Middle East Project. Daniel, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me on just a very hectic day. Uh, I've seen you in various media across the U.S. this morning, so thanks for taking time to chat with me. 
to kick off, I am interested in getting your perspective on why Hamas decided to launch this attack now. Obviously, this seemed to have been in the works for a long time, given the complexity of the operation. But why do you deduce they decided to strike when they did? As you say, this sophistication of operation clearly was not in the planning for only a short period of time. That, of course, doesn't mean that the go-no-go decision was taken a long time ago. In fact, one would imagine that was much sooner. There have been some reports, and I am really not convinced that those are accurate, that there was perhaps a meeting that took place in Beirut, that the final green light was given by Tehran. And I would distinguish between two things here. I don't think that is the case. I don't think the instruction came out of Tehran or the Hezbollah-controlled parts of southern Beirut. What I would say on that is that the capacity of Hamas and the other important resistance movement participant in this Palestinian Islamic Jihad has been upgraded as a consequence of the relationship that they have with the other members of the axis of resistance. And there, this is a thing, the axis of resistance, which includes Iran, includes Hezbollah, it includes these movements. And so the ability to conduct asymmetric warfare of the type that we saw is in part a function of that relationship, but that doesn't mean that they are a proxy who does Iran's bidding. That's like a long-standing idea that Hamas is supported by Iran, but is not a proxy of Iran as opposed to Hezbollah, which is very much a proxy of Iran. And that is one of the, I think, the key distinguishing features between those two entities, among others. I agree, but I would also want to position these things on a spectrum. In other words, Hezbollah also has a Lebanese constituency that it has to think about. So there's complexity in all of these relationships. Now, the other thing that looms large in conversations around the Middle East that relate to the Israeli-Palestinian situation and that people are therefore looking at and saying, aha, is that the proximate cause? Is the American push to achieve a package that would be US-Saudi? There's a lot of geopolitics around that as to why America would want to be deepening its relationship with Saudi right now, perhaps decelerating Saudi's geopolitical pivot, but that also has an Israel leg. Part of the package is a normalization with Israel. And so if you look at this from what is one of the things that was on the cards that will be most immediately impacted, I do think those talks go into a hiatus. It doesn't mean that the American-Saudi talks and this won't happen still under the Biden administration, but I think it becomes less likely. It has been put to me that that seems a decent explanation as to why now. And I think it is part of the story. But again, I find it insufficient as a catch-all explanation. And so where I'm left in trying to answer that question is that these things eventually reach a, one could say, tipping point, that one should pay a bit of attention and take at least a little bit seriously what the movement itself is telling us, which is we keep warning you. We keep saying that if the situation deteriorates, if none of the issues we're putting on the table see any movement then this is the ultimate recourse for a resistance movement to take. And so I think we're probably better off and we probably get closer to the correct answer if we zoom out a little bit 
and consider the fact that what we see is a situation whereby Palestinian conditions keep deteriorating. There has been a whole additional layer of provocations from the current Israeli governing coalition. In other words, it's not that there's some fantastic status quo ante from before Bibi's new government that if only we could return to that, things would go swimmingly. No, things were bad. The denial of basic Palestinian rights and freedom, the regime under which they live, that is the long-term cause. And then you have the provocations of the new government, the ones that Hamas has focused on is Al-Aqsa, you know, is the Temple Mount, the holy site in Jerusalem. And there, there's a disagreement actually within the Israeli government on this, which I won't go into. It's interesting, but you have important forces in the government who have been pushing the envelope on that. That, is, as my friend Danny Seidman calls it, is nitroglycerine when it comes to this part of the world. You have the settler militias who have really been given the green light to do their worst by this Israeli government. And there have been a lot of instances of Palestinian fatalities on the West Bank. It's been the deadliest year and the worsening of the conditions for Palestinian prisoners. So if you put all of that together, and if you remember that on the other side of the Palestinian political divide, and I'll close with this, you have the Fatah-led PLO, and they made the decision to go for peace talks, go to negotiations. They have seen no return on that investment. Things have only got worse. Hamas is the resistance movement. The PAPLO in the West Bank is very fragile. They've seen an Israel that's polarized and looks a bit fragile. And I think those things come together. And this is the moment to try this kind of thing. So if it really is that the explanation is, you know, the boiling point explanation with maybe a little added value from a Hamas strategic perspective that they could try to scuttle the U.S.-Saudi-Israeli normalization. If that is indeed kind of the strategic logic driving this attack, I mean, you look at like the flip side of this, which is Netanyahu's real innovation, which has been to treat the Palestinian issue as like a security challenge to be managed, not a political problem to be solved. And if indeed you know, Hamas is trying to change that equation. How do they perhaps foresee this endgame or, or this resolving itself in any way that's meaningfully supportive of Palestinian aspirations? Well, I want to be careful here not to overindulge my own capacity for putting myself in that headspace. And I think looking back on what led us here, it's somewhat easier to do that than extrapolating forward. But the point that you make is really important, if I can say for the following reason, Mark, because Netanyahu has, as you say, tried to make this case, look, you know, the Palestinians, they're never going to get anything as long as we can manage them. And to be honest, they're relatively easily managed. It's a version of the Bush neocon era, real men go to Iran, right? After Iraq, there was that Bush next has to be Iran. And I think there's the Israeli version of it is the serious people don't deal with the Palestinian file. The Palestinian file is a mowing the lawn maintenance file. Serious people deal with the Iranian file. And I mention that because, and it feeds into the answer to where does this go as Hamas sees it. But I mention that because I think that precise approach by Israel goes some significant distance to explaining how come the enormity of the failure here? Because 
the scenes are, are heartbreaking, and, and I also tremble to think what's going to happen in Gaza. But the extent of the failure of Israeli deterrence, of Israeli initial military response, and of Israeli intelligence is enormous. And I think one can only explain that if one brings into the equation this hubris that Israel has towards the whole Palestinian issue, that these are a defeated people, they'll have occasional bursts of energy, but we've got this managed low cost, the world doesn't care, there, there are countries normalizing with us who never would have in the past. Everyone has moved on. And I think this led to uh, deep miscalculation and going too far in believing your own spin and your own lies leads to a decomposition of the capacities in your system. And I think that's what we've seen. Now, Hamas and the resistance movements may be overreaching in drawing that conclusion to the extent to which this kind of an action can lead to a relatively rapid unraveling of more of the system. I think the Israeli system will regather rehabilitate its capacity to push back. And I think it's going to come at a huge cost to Palestinians in the short term. I do think in the long term, this doesn't play out well for Israel. But I think in the immediate term, Hamas may think that the brittleness and fragility on the Israeli side is greater than it is. And I think it's significant. It's more than it's been. But if you ask, how do they think this plays out? I assume that they have factored in the possibility of the kind of Israeli operation in Gaza, which displaces their government, that they're no longer in charge in Gaza, which they have been since basically 06, 07. So it's more than a decade and a half. But I think they're hoping that if Israel tries to do that, the cost of that will be so great, it will play into an already polarized Israel, that others may join, that the West Bank will be destabilized, that the PA in the Bank may well not be able to continue, and that there is a general unraveling, and out of that will emerge new openings. That's the closest I can come to trying to articulate an answer to your question. I can't say it won't play out that way, and ultimately it may well, but I think that's more of an over the horizon thing. Well, it does seem from an Israeli perspective that they are seeking to mount a kind of operation in Gaza that is unlike anything we've ever seen. We've heard really kind of terrifying language from the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, this morning. We're fighting against human animals, he said, in referring to Gazans and Hamas members. And we can probably expect you know real indiscriminate kind of warfare to befall people of Gaza. But from Israel's perspective, what is their endgame? Presumably, they're going to flatten lots of Gaza. They're going to do a ground incursion that will cost lots of Israeli lives as well. What do they hope to achieve that can give them a modicum of stability? First of all, there's form here. We have a track record of Israeli deployment of disproportional force against the civilian population of Gaza and the casualties that we've seen in the past and the devastation of infrastructure. Gaza is home to 2.2 million Palestinians, terribly enclosed space. Gaza, I think, has accurately been described as an open-air prison and has been under siege for that same decade and a half that I referred to earlier. But where you're right is we are hearing a threat 
from the Israeli side, the likes of which we have not heard before. Now, partly that's public consumption, given the atmosphere and what has gone on over the weekend. We have heard the Prime Minister, as well as the Defence Minister, essentially commit themselves to war crimes, and I think those have begun already, and cut off water, electricity, you know, all supplies are going to be cut off to Gaza. Is there a ground invasion? I think that is to be expected. It may be that all the threats and preparations are a head fake, but more likely that will go ahead. But that is likely to take a heavy toll, a massive toll on Palestinian civilians in Gaza, a heavy toll on the Israeli forces. But they may look at this and say, if there were ever an ability to carry the Israeli public with on a mission like this, now is the time. But then you ask the crucial question of, okay, still, what's the end game? And this is where, unfortunately, one cannot get sense out of the Israelis. Because there is, and it's amazing to still have to say it, but it's more important to be said now than ever, there is no military solution. I really don't see that. Now, is there going to be a massive attempt to expel also Palestinians from Gaza? Is this going to become, in significant measure, Egypt's problem? What you have in Israel today is essentially two camps, I think one could accurately call it. In the past, there were two camps, one of which said, we maintain and entrench the occupation. We keep seeing how much more we can take from the Palestinians. And there's no compromise. And another camp said, look, we've got to make some kind of compromise. On a very good day, you might have an opposition which talked about significant deoccupation. Most of the time, and it's true of the current opposition leadership of Lapid and Gantz, if people are familiar with those names, they were in government partnership with a settler leader, Naftali Bennett, in what was the alternative to Netanyahu just a year ago. At the moment, the opposition camp really doesn't offer much at all. It's a continuation of current policies just with a ever so slightly more humane face. But today, the division is really between those who say, steady as she goes, we have managed to, in an incremental, gradual fashion, take more and more of the Palestinians, confine them to ever smaller spaces, create a regime which the West and the US at least accept, which has been defined internationally by the leading human rights organizations Human Rights Watch Amnesty, by Israeli Human Rights Watch, by the Palestinian groups, and even by former heads of the Mossad as a regime of apartheid, versus those who say, ah, but the problem is the Palestinians are still there, and therefore we haven't actually won. And so you increasingly hear from the Israeli right, including from deep inside the Likud, including in the last days, that we need to get rid of the Palestinians. There needs to be a second Nakba. The Nakba was the mass expulsion of Palestinians during the creation of Israel. And only a mass act of ethnic cleansing can resolve this. So if you like, that's the mirror image. That's the very maximalist thinking. But those are the contours of the argument on the Israeli side. And if you ask endgame, then that's the space we're in. So really, the impact of this assault has been to drive the debate even farther to the right between those that are content with continuing, you know, an apartheid regime versus those that are more kind of genocidal in intent. That's just like an awful, awful conclusion to draw, but it seems to reflect the reality of domestic Israeli politics right now. I guess I've led you there, Mark. I'm reluctant to go there because I think that was true you know, Friday evening before this began. And I think it's true when we're talking 
That's certainly the immediate wave of reaction. But I... Yeah, talk me down, please. I'll talk, talk you down, exactly. I'd like to believe, you know, for someone like me, this is the worst of times also for the following reason, because you spend literally day after day, week after week, talking to officials, talking to policymakers, and you say to them, you want to ignore the Palestinian issue. And this is, of course, very bon ton. The Palestinian issue has been swept under the carpet. Oh, gosh, Daniel, you still deal with that old nonsense? And you say to them, but it's going to blow up if you close every other avenue. If you're not going to do anything diplomatically, if you're going to say to Israel, don't worry, you don't have to make any hard choices. If you're going to say to them, you can get away with anything. I'm not saying Israel could be forced out of the territories. What Israel could do is understand, though, that there was a price to pay that you couldn't get all the military goodies you wanted, that you couldn't get all the international benefits, that there was going to be stuff in the UN, perhaps at the ICC, that your settlement products couldn't be traded, that maybe there'd be sanctions against you as a country. If you close all of that, and then you look at that officially, and so you know what you're saying, you know you're saying that armed resistance violence against civilians is going to be the only thing that they do that can have any impact and you get a grimace and, and a shrug because an honest interlocutor will know that that is the case. And so it's incredibly frustrating for that reason. But I haven't walked you back down, have I yet? But now I'm going to. No, no, no. I'm, I'm still on the ledge. <laughs> exactly. Now, what I would like to believe is that after this initial wave of reaction, there is an ability on the Israeli side to look at this and say, this hasn't worked, has it? We can't provide security for our own people. Ignoring the Palestinian issue hasn't made it go away. Now, I fear that this won't be enough. Look, violence always has two responses. On the one hand, we've got to hit back harder at them. It doesn't always happen, but it can happen. On the one hand, we've got to hit back harder at them. On the other, you know, this isn't really working for us. Now, I tend to think that Israel's days of occupation deluxe may have just run out of time. And I don't think what was seen on the weekend will be seen again. But I do think that it's going to spread, whether it's in the West Bank, whether it's also in surrounding countries, whether it's inside Israel itself. In May of 2021, the Palestinians called it the Unity Intifada. You had also inside Israeli towns and villages, manifestations of support, but also violent actions. So I think this isn't going to go away. And the windows of calm are going to grow shorter. And if we continue to fail on the political side, then it will be violence and an ongoing feeling of insecurity that eventually pursues new thinking. But I would like to believe that there's a chance, at least, that we can get some politics going. Clearly, the American administration is not thinking in those terms, and it's continuing to do all the worst things it could. But maybe even that gets revisited one day. I wanted to just conclude by asking you a bit more about Hezbollah and the prospect of a wider regional war. Like, what are some of the variables that you are monitoring, that you are watching, that might suggest to you that what we're seeing today is just a precursor to something potentially much worse and, and Hezbollah's direct involvement? As we're speaking, there has been some kind of exchanges. There's been a constant stream during the day on Monday of news items, of a little trickle trickle of rocket fire of the Lebanese border into Israel. Infiltrations or attempted infiltrations. As we're speaking, that has not yet expanded. Clearly, this is the thing that a lot of people are also going to be looking at. I 
tend to think that on the Israeli side, the option of go really big, and if you actually want to be able to maintain an extensive, prolonged action in Gaza, then you are going to have to deal with Lebanon. So do it preemptively. And maybe even under the cover of this, go even larger and do something more aggressive directly against Iran than the kinds of covert, although with very little denial operations that have happened so far. I imagine that's under consideration. It's a hugely risky dice to roll after what you've just suffered on the weekend. So I tend to think that that is not where things will go. In terms of the other side, how long would Hezbollah be able to sit on the sidelines if the images coming out of Gaza and perhaps elsewhere in the Palestinian territories and inside Israel, if those images, and if it's relentless and it's appalling scenes, how long can you sit on the sidelines as Hezbollah? Well, maybe you can sit it out entirely. But I do think the longer this goes on, the more unpredictable the Lebanon part of the equation gets. But perhaps from the Israeli side, you don't want to risk that. And from the Hezbollah side, you say, you know, let's maintain some capacity. Not every resistance front should move at once. So that's what's hanging in the balance. And I think it would be impossible to say at this stage. Yeah, things are, are just too volatile at the moment, I think, to predict anything one way or the other. I really appreciate your time, Daniel. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me with you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you. <laughs>